Hey, what's happening? Welcome back. Another episode for you right here, right now. And I've been spending the past few days doing these little thought video experiments where um, I just kind of want to share what's going on in my head. And of course, I do this every week. But I kind of just as an exercise in, um, I wouldn't say discipline, but just to put my thoughts out there and kind of get some sense of structure, um, which absolutely doesn't happen. I just end up um, spilling words out of my face. But um, if you're interested to listen to what I'm talking about, you can head over to my YouTube channel for the podcast, Soapy Rao Show, and just check out uh, what I'm putting out there. It might, might not appeal to you. Uh, but I was thinking while I was putting these things out, there's this sense of luxury and privilege that is being bandied about, right? A lot of people are talking about how certain people are privileged and how that should be acknowledged and some people should apologize for the privilege, some people should be thankful. And I agree that you should be appreciative of it. It's not in your control if you want to believe in destiny or you want to believe in fate or you believe in the idea that you are born and you have no control over that. Uh, You know, it's your, it's whatever you buy into and whatever you believe in. It's not for me to impose or to deny any particular way a person thinks. But anyway, if you, if, if you kind of just take this thing on a personal level and you look at the privilege that you might have without people yelling at you saying, how dare you speak like that? It's coming from a place of privilege, male privilege, white privilege, brown privilege, class privilege. Okay. You know, I'm not even going down that path and I'm not going to enter that debate, but I have something else to talk about, which uh, is happens to be around luxury and what we count as luxury because it's usually um, associated with uh, material position and material wealth and how much you kind of, um, what's the word, amassed in your life, right? Whether it's your stock portfolio, whether it's your savings, your investments, whether it's the house you live in or the houses you own, the amount of spending power, the number of cars you have, the school you send your kids to or the clothes you wear or the mode of transport, whether you're, whatever it may be, these are things that are given a certain sense of importance and certain value when it comes to measuring your luxury status or your ability to afford certain kinds of luxury. But I was thinking there are certain kinds of luxury which we aren't uh, willing to look at or rather acknowledge and that makes it much more uh, important to do because the thing is that we take it for granted and we kind of ignore it at the cost of you know hoarding these other forms of luxury to show to other people and of course there's nothing wrong in having luxurious things in your life because it's great to enjoy certain things that your hard work has allowed you to buy or to spend on but if we keep running after these things without acknowledging the actual luxury we have, sometimes we kind of forget how important it is that the, 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 the things that we take for granted can easily go away. But also the other, other yeah, at, at the same time, you have this thing where you pursue these other kinds of luxury without uh, acknowledging that you don't have the essential luxury. And I'm coming to that, which is time, uh, the time to kind of spend on what you want to do because when you are running behind making a certain amount of money whether it's through a job whether it's through a startup whether it's through in whatever form of money making uh, process you've chosen for yourself you kind of forget that the time which is yours is not yours anymore and you're kind of spending it at the office you're commuting for meetings or you're going uh, you know traveling on all these business trips or you're traveling on all these various commitments which your time is no longer 
uh, in your control. You've kind of given it over to someone else for the exchange of money or for the exchange of promises of money for the uh, eventual hope of that money translating to a luxury tag that you can uh, accumulate. What happens is then you forget um, that these things are essentially what you have and that's your time with whom or with what you want to do it's whom you want to spend it with with what you want to spend it on and i feel if the first luxury that is time and the ability to spend time on what you want to do at your own um at your own pace then the second luxury makes no sense because then you're kind of i wouldn't say living on borrowed time but you're spending all your efforts on kind of hoarding all these luxury tags without having the essential opportunity or the, the the essential luxury of being able to use it and you you see it in a lot of people a lot of places people save up and save up and they have a lot of uh, stress when it comes to um, doing these things because there's a certain number in mind there's a certain goal in mind and there's always this notion of I'll, I'll, I'll put it off until I get this particular goal or I'll get to this particular number and then I'll do things for myself and then I'll do things in my own time I'll do it at my own pace but many a time you, you see it just doesn't happen because you either pop it or you kind of just have a meltdown and then it just seems like everything is futile and pointless so yeah, I really think, uh, you know, the past few months and even the past few, I think a couple of years, I've had this luxury of being able to choose what I do when I do. And I really um, think it's something that I never acknowledged. And I really, really value how important it is and how much it's done for me when it comes to being thankful for what I have. And I'm I'm really, really uh, amazed. But, but, but there is a but. I feel sometimes though this luxury of time does give you questions because if you don't have time and you're distracted or rather if you're not privileged enough or you don't have this thing in your um, in your grasp, then you're just distracted all the time just, just trying to make ends meet because that's the other end, right? One way is to kind of pursue these numbers, pursue these goals to, for this, this, this increased status for more money. But then there are other people who don't have the luxury or the privilege of even kind of thinking ahead in the future to kind of have goals. They're just trying to make ends meet. What they make in that day just serves for, for feeding their family that day or not even that. And in that case... You know, you can't tell them like, oh, you know, you can't run after luxury. Why would you want a bigger house? Because that's fucking arrogant and that's kind of selfish saying, you know, I can I can afford a dream like that, but you shouldn't. But but I think in some ways, if, if you don't have time to think uh, and if you're not using that time well, then the mind goes down different paths, right? Because sometimes when you think about aging and planning for the future and you have these thoughts of when I get old, what will I do? Then the mind kind of takes you down a it takes you down this kind of slippery slope when that you, you start stressing about something and that's when time isn't your friend it basically becomes this curse which kind of just builds this cycling uh sense of uh doom and dread and these ideas that keep kind of spiraling out of control and sending you into this not a very happy place let's be honest where you're kind of constantly stressing and not enjoying what you have now so both things of when you're constantly chasing the luxury tags without understanding that you need the time to enjoy these things or you need to understand why you're doing these things or you choose what to spend it on is one problem um the other uh, biggest problem is not having the option of even saying you know what i would like to have time because you know it'd be nice to take a nap or it'd be nice at all levels to kind of have extra food on the table to kind of just take a break from work that's a problem as well when you don't have options and the other problem is when you do have the time but you kind of choose to spend it on these bad 
I wouldn't say bad and right and wrong kind of things, but on these kind of pointless ways of sending the mind into this loop of thinking, which really doesn't serve any purpose because we all are going to die. We are going to kind of go, get older. We're all going to wither away, but maybe hopefully digni- in a dignified way and we're not like stuck onto a machine. That's not in our control. But what is in our control is what we can do now with our mind, what we, what we can do with our time, what we choose to do and kind of enjoy the, the thing we have because, you know, this be like when I'm 80, I'll do There's no point. You don't know what's going to happen when you're even you know fucking what two weeks from now so i think yeah i think this whole exercise or this whole opportunity of me trying to just acknowledge what i have with time and what i've been doing sometimes i do go down that path and i think of oh shit you know when i'm this age this is going to be what's happening this my daughter's going to be this old will i have op- will I have the opportunity will I have the resources to take care of her and i try kind of nipping that in the bud because i'm literally sitting right here right now and i ki- kind of want to be here right now right now uh, right now right now yeah and enjoy uh, and appreciate and try to kind of just be, I would say in the moment, but kind of do what I'm, I've chosen to do and um, enjoy that and enjoy the people I'm with because you never know. Yeah. Anyway, so I'll share that with you. Uh, let me get to today's guests. Brendan Egan is an associate professor of sports and exercise physiology at Dublin City University. It's the School of, let me get this right, Health and Human Performance. Yeah, I got it right. Um, today's episode, we speak about, well, so many things surrounding fitness, myths around fitness, um, what is good for you when it comes to an exercise format, when it comes to choosing what you need to do for your body type, considering your family history, considering what food you have available, what your body is used to, your metabolic thresholds, um, and also we talk about aging and skeletal muscles and, their, and how exercise and nutrition can affect that, how there are certain, um, you know, th- trends that are being promoted online to do certain things which other people tell you to do when it comes to peak performance and adopting exercise um, routines that are, you know, being used by professional athletes and how that need not necessarily be good for you because you aren't uh, an athlete, a professional athlete in that field, but you might just be an IT engineer or a lawyer and you kind of have to understand what your body needs and what you need at this point in your time and what your goals, if you have goals, for your uh, exercise plan. Why are you doing that? Are you doing it because you're applying it to a certain field? Are you applying it to a certain profession or are you just doing it to maintain your body health and your mental health and your physiology and your skeletal muscle strength. So there's so many things that Brendan educated me on and there's so many things that he clarified. And I'm sure if you are someone looking at applying a lot of the knowledge out there, the information that you listen to or the information that you read to your lifestyle, to the choices you make with what you eat and what you choose to do for exercise and how you spend your time, I think this episode will really um, give you a lot of clarity i think it'll give you a, a sense of how do you make peace with what you choose to do and how to not get torn apart in multiple directions by all the various things being thrown at you from different angles so i enjoy talking to brendan i'm sure you'll enjoy listening to him as well and brendan if you're listening i thank you very much for joining me and to all of you listening appreciate it take care of yourselves till next episode goodbye god bless cheers
Brendan Egan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure to be here, Sandeep. Lovely. So you're someone who's, um, well, a great person to answer questions that, you know, in today's day and age, everyone sort of seems to be keyed in with health and wearing these CGMs and trying to biohack and doing all these things <laughs> and understanding their body. Uh, but maybe can we just start from the basics, right? How much more as a society or as a group of people uh, do we know about exercise and its its relationship to lifestyle, quality of life, health, mm. etc.? Yeah, well, those um, new advances, I suppose, in technology are um, they're kind of like the icing on the cake from the point of view of what we know about exercise in the sense that uh, it's got to be at least 50 years since we first began to realize the benefits of exercise for health. And so ever since then, there's kind of been hundreds, thousands, perhaps, of studies that have identified the relationship between um performing exercise on a regular basis um, for and its relationship to improvements in health. Mm-hmm. Early on, quite a bit of the um, work was around aerobic exercise. In fact, it was much around the physical activity of work. You know, some of the yeah. early studies focused on bus conductors and the fact that um, when um, the bus conductors working in London who went up and down the stairs all day checking tickets, they were quite a bit healthier than the bus drivers who sat all day. And that was yeah. one of the early studies that, that showed the benefits of, of exercise. So throughout the um, the years that followed that, much of the focus was on aerobic fitness and uh, cardiovascular health. And then I would say uh, in the last, say, 20 years, there's been this increasing appreciation for the benefits of strength training. And um, right. so where we are at the moment, I would say, is that, and particularly strength training as it relates to older age and the um, mitigating the um, loss of muscle mass and function that, that comes with, with age. And I would say where we are at the moment is that we've very well defined um, exercise guidelines in terms of what people should ideally get per week. Um, and that generally falls out at something like 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise, perhaps 75 minutes if you're doing sort of vigorous intensity exercise um, and two, at least two strength promoters um sessions of exercise per week and there's a little bit more about flexibility and balance and so on that that can come into that but that's the broad prescription and i I think that people become um maybe a little bit fixated on the fact that we must meet those guidelines as opposed to many people simply don't do any exercise and we just need to get them moving towards the guidelines as opposed to actually achieving the guidelines and i think maybe one of the messages that you and i will talk about is that you know something is better than nothing and um, Mm. the big challenge i think for a lot of people is just to start doing something as opposed to trying to hit these aspirational guidelines um so to to sum it all up in terms of the 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 health benefits of exercise are widely known and they have been known for um, many years and some of this new modern technology is is helpful from the point of view of understanding the quantity of exercise that people are doing, but it can also actually be useful as as in a form of accountability so that people have targets they want to hit or they have metrics that they might understand, push them along um, and so on. So it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting time with, with, with the new developments. Because, you know, the thing is, it seems like there's a lot of noise in the space of exercise, right? And I don't mean it in a necessarily bad or mm. good way, but it just seems there's a lot more talk about it, or maybe this just the sort of the the, the the spaces where I visit where I hear a lot more about it. Um, so you you mentioned an you know an interesting thing, which is where people's lifestyles. When I look at even my parents' generation, mm. it, it wasn't as sedentary. You know, it was yeah. a lot more get up early, go to work, 
you know, the 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 thing was exercise was was, was more of a sport, you know. Mm. You'd either play, you know, badminton in the mornings, or you'd mm. you'd go for a walk, or you'd go for a round of golf, or you'd do one, you'd do something. But it was not necessarily categorized as exercise. But I see the same generation now. My my parents are in their sixties and seventies, um, and and I see them focusing a lot more besides going for their golf or going for whatever sport. Mm. They do exercise four to five times a week, and they do, as you mentioned, strength training to help those the bone density and the the, the muscle um, uh, strength, mm. right? But when we look at a younger population, um, it seems that everyone's, you know, aspiration is to go after these crazy workouts like the Insanities and the P90X and these things. Mm. Um, so I don't know if it's specific um, workouts or specific trends, especially with social media and these physical health uh, uh, influencers uh, pr- promoting all these 15 minutes, lose body fat or in 30 yeah. days, get the, all these challenges to get fit. I think it's great that, you know, exercise has become mainstream conversation, but um, something that interests and also concerns me is that, is there a certain exercise that suits everyone or how mm-hmm. does someone find something that works for them? Because, you know, someone say from like the subcontinent, like me, doesn't have the same um you know, the skeletal framework doesn't have the same yeah. muscle tone, doesn't even have the same cardiovascular system as someone from, say, Europe. So if I go do something really intense, like I listen to Andy, Andrew Huberman, and I say, I'm going to do a cold plunge, then I'm going to do a 90-minute, mm-hmm. uh, you know, exercise, which is really heavy and intense. It might feel good once or twice, but I don't know, is the wear and tear a lot more on the body for someone? Or how, how does that kind of matching the exercise to the person or to the population work out? Yeah, so you, you've touched on a, on a lot of themes there. So I'm going to try and uh, circle back and catch them all. So the, um, the first point you make, which is that in, in general, historically, um, physical activity was kind of in the, um, was built into our work day, you know, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of talk about physical activity transitions. And that's the idea where we've gone from um, a society that relied very heavily on activities that involved manual labor and movement and so on to a, a society that's more sedentary in our, in our daily habits. Mm-hmm. So we've probably moved from that uh, idea where exercise, or sorry, physical activity is part of our day to what is now more structured exercise. And there's an important distinction there because in, in 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 scientific terms they are different you know physical activity is kind of any movement that you do that raises your heart rate above resting Um, exercise then is structured physical activity with the goal of improving some component of fitness so they're quite different if you think about it from a from a philosophical point of view and it kind of then speaks to your point about the likes of the new um trends on 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 social media or in different types of uh, fitness um um themes that are emerging where people are focused on very, very specific types of training to bring about somewhat specific goals. Sometimes it's around weight loss. Sometimes it's around muscle growth. Sometimes it's both. Um, but they can be very, very different um, types of exercise under the broad terms of aerobic exercise, strength training, circuit training, um, all of these uh, types of training. Mm-hmm. So to your question about whether um you know there are better exercises for for better people you, you did mention uh, two two terms I'll come back to biohacking certainly there seems to be this um uh, under that umbrella I would place this idea of pursuing very extreme types of of exercise as a means to achieve your goals mm-hmm. and the the problem I see with that and I think you were were hinting at it is that for someone who doesn't perform any exercise at all and going back to my earlier point about beginning to do something um yeah. at all 
sometimes what what people who do no exercise at all might need to do is just to begin to walk for 30 minutes a day five days a week they don't need to be going into you know high intensity body weight exercise followed by a cold plunge followed by a sauna you know this is it's it's kind of um the people who are in in that domain um they're people who are very experienced i would say with exercise already have tried lots of different types of of training and now they're gravitating towards novel um trends and and so on so there's a, that element that the message needs to be, you know, on social media where you're seeing, seeing people pursue many of these, I would say, extreme types of, of exercise and activities. That's not really for everyone. You know, mm. it's probably somewhere around 60 to 80 percent of the population on average across lots of different countries don't engage in any form of exercise. So wow. really, they're the people that we probably want to target. Uh, they're the people we want to target in terms of getting them to be more active. Um, That's a huge number. And then so your, your other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh no, it's very high. Yeah. Um, so then your your other point about um about you know the right exercise for the right person. You mentioned a very important phrase, which is you know what works for them, and that that's a message that we that we use a lot, which is that for many people starting out on their exercise journey, if they've never done much before, it is about finding the exercise that works best for them. And you mentioned a few different things like golf or badminton. You know, sports can be very useful because they involve other people and there can be that accountability. There can be the body system and all the social enjoyment that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And from the point of view of just getting the body moving and becoming more um, more uh, aerobically and perhaps a little bit on the strength side, becoming more fit in that way, those sports serve a great purpose. I suppose where we get into the more specific side of things is if, for example, you're dealing with someone who's 65 years of age, they're beginning to notice declines in, in their um, strength and their movement capabilities, and you want to intervene then with a very specific type of exercise training to improve strength um, or to increase muscle size if someone has had a period of inactivity and they've lost a lot of, of muscle size. So there is that kind of um, balance to be struck between just having people involved in exercise in general because it's good for their health versus very specific types of exercise to bring about some targeted change with within their body and again the requirements in terms of you know expertise um in terms of support of physiotherapists or exercise scientists or fitness instructors that does vary quite a bit depending on the person and and the types of goals that they're after mm. and you know um it's nice to hear what exercise does i mean the importance of exercise is is, mm-hmm. is clearly marked in mm-hmm. studies and various uh, fields of study have highlighted how important it is physically and even mentally and cognitively psychologically mm-hmm. what it does for your mood etc but maybe what does a sedentary lifestyle do to your body because someone in their 20s might, might not feel it right now right because the body's resilient they don't the, the, the aches and pains you don't yeah. think so it's much easier to wake up in the morning and say you know instead of even five minutes or 20 minutes on the cross trainer or treadmill or even thinking, you know what, I'm young, I can handle it. I'm just going to have like mm-hmm. a nice big piece of toast with Nutella on it and it's much, mm-hmm. much better, right? Because you've got to be honest, sometimes waking up and getting that kind of that inertia to go out is a little hard. So you rather just yeah. have, you know, especially yeah. if you're in a cold country, a hot cup of coffee, that's nothing like it. But yeah, yeah. Um, when you're in your 40s, then you start fe- feeling a little bit of stiffness and, you you, you know, mm. things take longer to recover. But what happens um, in, in inside the body, like mu- on a muscular level uh, yep. to, to your to your entire system when there's inactivity? And it could be sitting on the sofa watching Netflix, could be sitting at a desk 10 hours a day. At, mm. and, and maybe from a younger age, if, if you start mm. this lifestyle versus someone who's active, what happens in the two uh, scenarios? Yeah, yeah, there are two, uh, there are two great ways to think about this. So, um, 
let's start with the physical inactivity piece. So um, one of the um, kind of axioms that we use nowadays is something like um, physical inactivity contributes to the increased risk of at least 35 different clinical conditions. Um, so it's a really nice review. It's probably uh, 15 years uh, old at this stage where there's this really nice picture of a, of a, of a human body. And mm-hmm. what you see is lines coming out of pretty much every organ system and every part of the body that describe uh, clinical conditions that are linked to physical inactivity. Wow. Okay. So there's a, there's a, one of the perils of my uh, office is uh, the rubbish bins just went by. But oh, that's fine. So in, in the case of um, so like I'm saying, there's there's um, a huge number of clinical conditions where physical inactivity is is seen to uh, increase the risk. Mm-hmm. Now, this is slightly different to the uh, idea that exercise can mitigate the risk. And so that will bring me to um, the, the other point that you mentioned about getting old and the effects that, that would have. But if we stick on the physical inactivity uh, piece for a second, um, you ask what happens w- within the body and let's use the muscular system a- as an example. So as as we obviously, as we grow up and we mature in, in adolescence, there is a certain amount of what we could call functional capacity that we develop. And functional capacity can be things like the ability to climb stairs or to get up and down out of a chair. And if we take that kind of extend that out further, so getting able to get up and down out of a chair could be one form of, of uh, movement or functional capability. And to extend that to kind of elite performance, it would be the ability to put weight on your shoulders and do a squatting exercise, which is, you know, a very similar movement. Um, so you might find that someone might, uh, you know, someone in there, let's say in their 20s, if they do no activity whatsoever, maybe they can get up out of, and down out of a chair 10 times without stopping, but then they feel fatigued. Whereas you could, you know, for an athlete, for example, you could put a, a weight of twice their body weight on their shoulders and they could do multiple repetitions of that exercise. Mm-hmm. So you see for two people of the same age, you can see this massive range in in terms of, of functional uh, ability. Mm. Now, the reason that's important is because if we then think about how the we progress um, through throughout our, our age, from when people reach their peak, which again, for in something like strength or in aerobic fitness is probably somewhere in, in the mid 30s. From then on, it's fairly well established that there are, you know, step um, um, slow declines that occur. You know, maybe it's a percent every other year or maybe it's a percent per year that occur um, as as we age. And at some point, um, physical fitness, whether we're talking about cardiovascular fitness or whether we're talking about strength, that will decline below a certain threshold that is often referred to as the disability threshold. Mm-hmm. And what that really means is that if your level of, of strength, for example, dips below a threshold where you're no longer able to get up and down out of a chair, then you're effectively uh, in, in under the disability threshold, meaning you need the help of a, a carer or you need an uh, assistance with walking or you may use a frame or a wheelchair. And as you say, when people are young and they're, you know, in their 20s, they're not really thinking of this as something as, as a long term consequence. But what the um, what the models show very nicely is that the greater that that capacity that you build early in life, the the less likely you are to drop below that disability threshold later in life. So it's almost like you think mm. you build up your ceiling or you build up your capacity to higher than here, and then when the declines begin to occur, even if they go in parallel, the person who's stronger or fitter early in life are, is much more likely to uh, stay above that disability threshold later in life. And I suppose the other thing that's related to that is, you know, someone who's involved in exercise training and developing strength or developing fitness, they're more likely to have lots of other good style, good lifestyle habits, you know, mm-hmm. diet and sleep and all these other things that, that we talk about. 
So I, I kind of like to say to people, you know, that difference, you know, when we reach our peak, the difference in that peak between two individuals could be, you know, enormous. And then as that is progressed throughout later life, you're seeing very, very different qualities of life, um, length of life and so on as as people age. And I think that's the the thing maybe to bear in mind is that you've got physical inactivity. There's no doubt that's a threat. But then there's also all these other benefits of, of activity in terms of the way that it can enhance um, the quality of our life later in life. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, the, the thing is, if you, if you, you know, you see, um, at least, you know, if you think, if I think back to school and just, mm. you know, the, the, I, I don't know, this is not scientific, but just the kids mm. uh, and the friends and the classmates who were more uh, physically engaged in sport, mm. which is, this, this, this seemed a lot more, um, I think, the, 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 even the, the attitude was a lot more better, mm. you know. Yeah. It was a lot more lively, if that's that's even a scientific, not a scientific word, but it's, <laughs> it just seemed that way. But yeah, and and and, and you know, in, in the 90s, we didn't really, you know, when, when I used to, you know, take take part in track and field, I never really had a trainer. I never went to the gym. I remember the day before running a 400 meter, I'd, I got out of the house in jeans and ran, and that was my warm up. Yeah. And that's all I would do. But it feels, you know, with obviously with more information comes a lot more, um, uh, you know, informed choices, which is great. But um, I think a couple of things I want to understand is one is um, how important is it to um, find something which you can do over the course of time? Because, you know, sometimes with, again, coming back to those trends, you know, you do six months of CrossFit, the, the next thing you get an injury because it's not, it's not really worked out for you. It's too intense. And then you go yeah. really, uh, you're like, oh, you know, that didn't work for me. I'm going to go into like, you know, uh, jujitsu or do some, mm-hmm. and you, every six months you stop because you're injured, then you get back into another form of exercise or, yeah. or martial art or sport. But is it okay to do that or rather just do something which you can not push to a hundred percent, but you're doing it to 60, 70%, but you're doing it for, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you're doing it from your 20s to your 60s, your 80s, but you're not getting that 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 significant heart rate going up. You're not getting that mm-hmm. significant burst of muscle energy of pushing that in the gym, you know, you see. So, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just want to understand um, how important is it is it to keep a sustained uh, yeah. exercise sort of program rather than changing it up every three months? Yes, that's a good question. And um, to to answer that, I have to kind of delve into the way that some of these um, lines of evidence uh, come from within the scientific domain. So a lot of the studies where we look at, say, the benefits of exercise uh, or the benefits of of, uh, aerobic fitness, and we're looking at long, long term effects in terms of cardiovascular health, mortality and, and so on, they're done in designs where where um, people are answering questionnaires or perhaps they're having one fitness test and they're then being followed um, for for you know many years of, of follow-up. And in those types of studies, we don't often get a good picture of um, the intensity that people are working at or um, the exact type of exercise that they're doing. It can be hard to get down to the granular detail there. So the other uh, type of, so they're observational studies. And the other way we kind of look at this is where we do so-called intervention studies. Mm. And this is where someone will take, undertake a period of training for 12 weeks or 24 weeks or a year. And different outcomes will be measured from, from that um, uh, fitness um, intervention. And based on the outcomes over you know that period of time, we then kind of infer the benefits that might be had later in life based on on what we see um, in these in these other cohorts. So we're kind of merging um, different lines of evidence when we come up with these recommendations. The reason I, I say all that is it can become quite difficult to answer very specific questions like like 
you asked there. Um, so could I point to a research study that says, you know, um, that it's not that it's, you know, that it's okay to work out for six months and then take a break for six months and, and so on. You know, it's very difficult to do those types of mm-hmm. studies, but what we can kind of get at is, is, you know, patterns like a lot of the studies would say that cardiovascular fitness, for example, is protective, um, uh, as in later life. And so the question might become, what does it take to develop um, a good cardiovascular fitness? And, you know, okay, there's a certain type of intensity of training that's that's needed there. But another question is what type of, of what level of activity does it take to maintain cardiovascular fitness as we age? And in that case, the answer actually isn't, it doesn't take a huge amount. It's more that you stay active continually um, as opposed to becoming inactive. And that's how I would kind of answer the question right. that, that you've asked there is that, do we need people to be doing extreme forms of exercise um, for six months, getting injured, and then maybe not returning to exercise for six months or nine months? Um, to me, that's not that's not a good pattern. I would much rather see people who are engaged in, you know, fun activities that they enjoy that make them sweat and make them breathe heavy in a way that lots of different forms of exercise do, and that it's uh, that it's enjoyable and they continue to do it um, throughout their life. So. My own perspective, I, I've been fortunate from, from that point of view, and maybe it's a little bit of the bias that I bring, is that I've been involved in team sport for, for my whole life. So I play mm. a sport called Gaelic football, which is um, yeah, it's similar to uh, to soccer, except we use our hands. So it's for your audience, if they know Australian rules football, it's very similar. Right, um, right. That. But, uh, you know, by being involved in team sport all the time, um, you know, we're engaged in sprinting activities. We're engaged in modern intensity activities. We do weight training as part of that. And then all of that is done in a collective group. And it's usually done by someone else doing the training. So I'm sort of uh, fortunate that, you know, my uh, activity in in my life is all pretty much with other people designed by Mm. someone else. You know, it's all very easy for me to just turn up and, and train. It's a very, very different thing to try and, um, you know, for someone who is maybe trying to motivate themselves to do their own training, who's going to a gym by themselves um, and trying to hit these exercise guidelines. So I appreciate there's again, there's an enormous continuum um, in terms of what types of uh, activities people enjoy, what they're likely to stick to and uh, and um, um, what benefits they're, they're likely to derive. But the bigger, bigger picture thing is, I think, that to say is that generally you want to be active you know as not i wouldn't say as much as possible but you know throughout our life course in in as much as that allows without having to be you know overly um dramatic in terms of following very intense exercise regimes or pushing ourselves too hard to the extent uh where we pick up injuries and aren't able to exercise it's it's finding um and i, I know it's boring to say this but it's finding moderation i suppose in in the context of all of the different types of exercise opportunities that are out there yeah the reason i asked you uh sort of we went down that path is because I remember in 2008, you know, as I was in my twenties, I, I had this guy coming, he was a trainer and he would push me uh, quite, 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 quite a lot. You know, I, I, you remember the movie 300 when it came out, there was a trainer yeah, called Jim, yeah, Jim yeah, Jones. Yeah, yeah. So Jim mm-hmm. Jones had developed this program for the, the actors in 300. And that's basically mm-hmm. doing 300 reps in five sets. So these exercises mm-hmm. from basic, from like deadlift to push ups to, mm-hmm. and then he would say, okay, let's vary it up. Let's go to the garden and throw rocks. And, and yeah. a couple of times in the workout, I've thrown up, like I felt really nauseous and, mm-hmm. and, but he would push me and, you know, and then I would just go sit in an office job and I'm going, okay, just type, <laughs> I, I don't need these forearms to type an email, you know, <laughs> but now, and then every night before class, I would send a text saying, not feeling well. I made excuses not to work out. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. now I've been, you know, I've had this person coming in, you know, helping me with the yoga practice for the past three years. And 
I look forward to the exercise. I look forward to the stretching. I look forward to the sustained holds, which also gave some burn. They're not obviously like doing deadlifts with, you know, 100 kilos or whatever it may be. But maybe is, is, there, a, is there a correlation or is there an advantage to enjoying the exercise you're doing? Well, I think that's a really important point because if you enjoy it, you're more likely to do it. So, you know, in, in your description there, I think you highlighted a challenge that many people feel, which is that when they engage initially in an exercise training program, particularly if it's intense, it can be enjoyable initially and they embrace the challenge. But if it becomes, you know, if they become fatigued or become sore or they wonder why they're doing it um, and it's not as enjoyable as doing other activities, then they are less likely to to engage. And mm-hmm. I think enjoy, enjoyment is the major piece if we're thinking about long term adherence or, or long uh, long term compliance. Just as you were describing the 300 there, uh, the workouts, it reminded me of, of an important point that I should have mentioned earlier, which is that. A lot of times the uh, type of exercise and, and the target or the goal, um, you know, they're very uh, tightly linked. So if someone really wants to reduce, for example, large amount of weight loss to exercise, obviously combined with diet, generally speaking, they will target these kind of high intensity efforts. You know, there's been this mm-hmm. idea that high intensity training combined with appropriate diet is the best way to to burn fat. And, you know, there's, there is a certain, again, uh, truth to that assuming that someone can stick to the the exercise regimens. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to build muscle, for example, you know, the, the, the most important determinant of building muscle mass is the volume of training, you know? So there has to be a certain amount of, of um, training done in order to build muscle. And that can actually be quite a high volume for, for some people. And so it might require three or four or five sessions per week um, of um, strength training. Now, in saying all that, Pretty much what I'm saying there is optimal. You know, I'm describing the optimal conditions to to get rid of body fat or I'm trying to optimal conditions to build muscle. And not everyone needs optimal, you know. Yeah. For a lot of people, it's just some form of progress above above baseline. You know, that will be good enough to provide health benefits. And that kind of goes back to my my point that I was making at the start, which is that something is better than nothing. If if you look again at these epidemiological or, or observational studies and they kind of try and show a dose response in terms of, you know, hours of exercise per week relative to to health benefits. Mm. And again, pretty much without fail, the most benefit is derived from, say, the first hour worth of exercise per week you know it's not you know t- take the example of this someone who does zero activity and now they do one hour per week that's mm. going to derive a much greater health benefit than someone who's already doing five hours a week and now they're doing six hours per week yeah. so that that initial um that initial um uh, commencement of a new exercise regimen um that's going to drive the most amount of benefit so pushing on and on and on towards you know larger number of hours larger number of sessions pushing for this idea of optimal that again is important for a small percentage of the population. Athletes, for example, high achievers, um, you know, people who compete in, in functional fitness and CrossFit and, and similar things. You know, that's where optimal really matters. For the vast majority of the population, it is just more getting active and you know doing something that involves enough of that minutes of aerobic activity, minutes of strength training activity um, done per week. Again, heading towards those guidelines that I mentioned earlier. Mm. You know, the one of the problems I have is. Um... I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks with like the Navy SEALs, the SAS, and you know, a lot of their training regimens. And then when I'm exercising, I'm like, man, <laughs> I can't even do. <laughs> but then in my head, I'm like, you know, that's their life. Like when you look at an elite, yeah. elite athlete or an elite soldier, their entire targeted yeah. exercise is for that 
you know, lethal uh, engagement or that perform- peak performance in that moment. And that's when muscle memory, the peak, uh, as yeah. you said, optimal muscle thing. And also like athletes, they, these guys have entire teams around them from, yeah. you know, trainers to, to, to sports uh, scientists to nutritionists. So when, when someone trains like a David Beckham and doesn't play football, but sits in an IT job, it's, 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 um, it does, is there a point after which, which exercise is bad for you? I wouldn't say it, I wouldn't frame it as being bad for you, but um, there's certainly, like many things, there's a law of diminishing returns in the sense that um, kind of the example that I was giving there, if, you know, if someone is hitting their exercise, the exercise guidelines in terms of minutes per week of aerobic activity and strength training sessions per week, once they go above that to, you know, to the extreme, there's probably not much extra benefit being derived there. And um so I wouldn't say it's bad for you, but there's probably, you know, not much value in that extra time invested. Now, saying that you bring up the athletes, athletes, it's a great point because what I often feel, uh, again, having been around elite sports, uh, both as a practitioner and as a player myself, is that athletes in general, um, like you say, they're motivated, they've got people around them and so on. But they do actually have, in my experience, a greater capacity to tolerate heavy training. And maybe mm. maybe that's why they've become the elite athletes that they are, because Whatever their genetic uh, or phenotypic background is, they're able to actually hand they're able to handle high training loads, um, and they're able to recover quicker than uh, than an average member of the population. And the, the likes of the Navy SEALs and so on. I mean, their um, their whole um, uh, pathway to becoming a Navy SEAL it is it is a filtering process. You know, starting off with a very wide intake. Um, you know, of, of, of recruits and then eventually going to multiple different types of training and selection until they eventually become Navy SEALs. I mean, similar to things like um, the NFL, for example, in the US, these are the elite of the elite and they're, uh, they're kind of freakish in their ability to do athletic feats. You know, some of the, some of the things, if you watch something like the NFL and you look at the NFL combine, some of the numbers that those athletes are hitting from the point of view of fitness testing i mean they're so far beyond what the average in the population would be and um i suppose that's the again a message there is that we shouldn't really compare ourselves to athletes in, in that regard because for the reasons that you mentioned in terms of their support their motivation i'm saying their genetic background and so on phenotype you know they are they are the extreme the one percent or maybe the point one percent of the population and not all of us can train or, or respond to exercise training like that I'll remind myself that when I'm reading the next book about, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, you know, the, there's a thing now where people are doing uh, these exercises and you see them in the news where, and then this is like, these are anecdotal, I'm sure, but I, I don't know if you've come across this where, you know, people certainly, they, they, you hear them like, yeah, I did one hour at 15 miles on the treadmill and Next thing you hear, the person's collapsed of a heart attack in the gym. So, I mean, this is not obviously everyone. I mean, this is, again, a small percentage. But that's Mm -hmm. why I asked you, is too much exercise bad? Because, you know, post-COVID, it seemed like a lot lot, lot more, it seems like a lot more people in their 30s and 40s um, are getting these these massive cardiovascular, um, you know, attacks. And Mm -hmm. uh, many, you know, sadly, many of it happens in the gym. And so it seems like a scary place to go. (laughs) So is there anything, any correlation at all? Or is this just a freak case and you're hearing more of it because people are able to communicate this more? Yeah, I think I think you've touched on an important point there is that uh, these kind of um, 
funny enough, these freakish occurrences are seem to be coming the news now. And uh, mm. there's this old saying, I'm sure you've heard, if it bleeds, it leads. So if you know, if there's a <laughs> yeah. bad story to do with health, it usually will will make headlines. Yeah. Um, but there, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are uh, risks associated with exercise. I mean, they're extremely, extremely low in terms of the you know incidence per uh, thousand is is very, very low from the point of say sudden death during exercise. So, for example, if we write, if we're applying to do a, a research study, we often have to state in our ethics. Um, approval applications, there is a certain amount of risk of performing exercise at high intensities. But I mean, it's fractionally small compared to uh, the benefits that are likely to be derived. Mm. So, you know, I'm not surprised, for example, that you might hear of a death during exercise like that. You know, that's that's just the way sometimes, uh, like I said, the world reports things. Um, yeah. You sometimes hear a, well, a story that's kind of emerged that has been uh, spun up quite a bit as well at the moment is this idea that people who engage in very, very high intensity or very prolonged um, activity can have certain changes that occur in the heart, for example, mm. that are that could be pathological in in the long run. So there's often these discussions of something like the uh, the cardiac arrhythmias or the regular heartbeats that some athletes who engage in ultra endurance type activities get, or there's uh, changes within the um, the wall uh, of the heart muscle that can occur um, that is natural, I guess, as we perform exercise, but can become pathological um, in later life. So you. Can- hear a little bit about that but again if you look carefully at the at the literature although it might be reported publicly and in the media as exercise you know in inverted commas what it actually looks like to someone who's in the scientific domain is that you know it's a really extreme form of either exercise in terms of intensity or duration and done for many many years as opposed to just one exercise bout or you know a six-week program or or something like that so the devil is always in the detail with a lot of these headlines and and concerns and um so it's like uh you know there's a grain of truth there but it's a very very small risk relative to the benefits that people can derive from exercise right no i think that's well um it's important to address because you can't just put a blanket statement right because Mm -hmm. it's so easy as you said someone sitting and having a bag of chips like see exercise i told you it's bad it's going to kill me (laughs) but you know strange thing is a few years back i think 2021 i think my dad's friend was i think in the 70s he was doing yoga and you know at the end of the yoga uh, class you do the dead body pose which is shravasana mm. right you relax in that mm. and so happens he died in that which oh. is a great way to go i mean not not that he <laughs> went but it's a if you think about it that's the ultimate relaxation right <laughs> just to say it's not just the treadmill could be yoga as well <laughs> just yeah to you're gonna that. make you're gonna make people afraid to get into that pose now if they're listening <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes yeah i'm in that i'm like is it is it today <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i can imagine yeah. um you know another thing i've uh, been listening to quite um a lot over the past year or so is this whole conversation around longevity right um, and when you talk about longevity, there are obviously the common themes, which is exercise and these other things, as you said, which is to trigger these systems in the body to uh, help the body live longer. Like, you know, the cold plunges, you have the 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 the, the, the um, uh, windows of fasting, the windows of uh, starvation, um, basically adversity that helps the body wake up yeah. these systems which are in place. I, I don't know the technical terms for them, but just uh, hormesis you know, is the way they describe it, yeah. Homesis, right? And autophagy is another one I heard, which is yeah, the right. body repairing. Um, 
So in 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 the scheme of longevity um, uh, exercise, you know, you spoke about how something which can be done over years in in the elite athletes, you know, they build up to the elite level. They don't start out elite, but obviously they have certain traits that do help them in that space. But you do um, focus in another in another space, which um, if you could talk about, would be great. Which is the whole um, inputs when it comes to nutrition, and in that, mm. what we hear a lot about in exercise is protein intake. And uh, I think you also focus on carbohydrate restriction. So could you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah. So, you know, in relation to longevity um, and health span, it's um, it's quite tricky because, you know, some of the best models and the best um, ideas are coming from rodent models. And, you know, the idea of translating those then into humans, um, things like autophagy, like you mentioned, there are they're difficult concepts to then demonstrate in humans. So we often get a lot of our um, hypotheses from things that are observed in, in rodents and then we try and almost retrofit them to you know what's happening in, in humans uh-huh. on the other hand you look at uh, something like um you know the longest lived humans so studies of centenarians for example um oftentimes the strongest predictor of of their uh, longevity is is their genes and you know unfortunately we can't choose our parents but uh we're you know we've got the genes we've got and you know there is an there's a very strong component of of long life that is that is linked to um to our genes so again, you've probably heard of the blue zones and, you know, many mm-hmm. of the, the, um, the, um, descriptors within there, the common features are, they don't actually talk. No, you know, the, the people in the blue zones are not doing strength training in a gym. You know, this is one of the, the paradoxes that often gets put to me is that, you know, how are, how, you know, you talk about strength training and you talk about protein. But if we look at the blue zones, for example, there's no evidence that in those, in those, um, cohorts that that's the type of, of activities that they're undertaking. Mm-hmm. Although I do often counter by saying, but, Diet is, a, is an important component, as is being physically active, whether it's you know pure strength training or not. Mm. So I guess what what I'm saying in in midst of all of that is again what we're doing with sort of exercise interventions and and uh, dietary interventions in in older adults is that we're trying to, we're taking an, an a concept that it will be better to be uh, stronger uh, and um, have you know a decent level of muscle mass on the body, you know. For as long as possible, again, thinking of that disability threshold and thinking of quality of life, you know, they're the types of interventions we, we can do in older adults. And yes, okay, centenarians and, uh, and the blue zones and so on, they seem to have these other, other components, but that's their specific cohorts. If we're talking generally about how we might try and improve, um, health span and, and, um, and functional ability in later life, it does seem to be around these, um, habits of maintain, maintenance of, of good exercise, strength training in particular. And as we'll probably get on to talk now about, uh, the, the dietary components around, around protein. So. so so that's yeah. I guess I guess an opening comment to to make there. And um your question then about protein in particular. Um so yeah, the the um the paradigm really here is that um when we are t- undertaking exercise training um and we're trying to augment the response to exercise training, the macronutrient that seems to have the most benefit in that regard is protein. Now it may be that there are people who already consume enough protein, uh, in which case they don't need to have additional protein to to get their benefits. But there may be people who are getting inadequate levels of protein and therefore additional protein um, or a higher protein diet can can benefit their um, response to training. But I, I think it's very hard to put a number on what's the, mo- you know, how much of, of the adaptation is exercise, how much of the adaptation is, is diet. But generally speaking, what I would say is that the vast majority of benefits um, are coming from the exercise itself. And then mm-hmm. manipulations of, of the diet are, you know, for, again, if we're talking about muscle strength here and uh, muscle mass. 
the manipulation of diets is adding on another small um, percentage um, to that. The reason that protein has become the focus that it has is because, again, generally speaking, across um, uh, most countries, when they've been surveyed from a dietary point of view, you've got your recommended daily allowance, which is relatively low. And I, I, I'll give you the numbers if, if it's of interest. So the RDA in most countries is 0.8 grams of protein per kg of body mass. Mm-hmm. So for someone who weighs, you know, roughly my size, 80, key, 80 kg, that's like 64 grams of, of protein. Mm-hmm. Now, Per day. Now, with an athlete, for example, generally the recommendation is about 1.6 to 2 grams per kg body mass. So it's, you know, upwards towards two to three times the RDA. And then in the case of an older adult, the current guidelines are 1.2 grams per kg body mass per day, which again is about 50% more than the rda mm. and there's been this again it's probably not the uh the uh, podcast to begin speaking about the uh the rda and where it came from and the, will it be revised and so on but again generally speaking the the um the thinking at the moment is that the protein intake that people should get on a daily basis is probably around the 1.2 gram per kg mass uh, body mass mark rather than the 0.8 and again whether it needs to go higher than that that's debatable in athletes the reason it's so high is because we've much more exercise much more protein turnover we're trying to repair recover uh, and and so on but certainly the general population are probably needs to be a little bit higher than on average it is so that brings the question are we eating enough protein later in life and one of the reasons why we might not be is because as people age particularly over um, 60 they begin to develop uh, what's known as the anorexia of aging which is where people's appetite actually becomes a little bit less as they, mm. they get older, they get fuller, uh, easier. They get fuller on protein containing foods, um, a lot easier to the extent that they may end up eating less protein than they had earlier in life. And then potentially you've got the, the effects there of, of, um, not supporting training adequately, not having the building blocks for muscle. So I should have mentioned that already. Um, you know, yeah. one of the main reasons we're f- focused on protein in, in older life is because protein in, in the diet is the building block. That we use then for the the protein, or sorry for the the proteins in our, in our muscles. Right. So it's it's a. I tried to wrap up a very um, kind of broad topic there in in, in a few uh, examples, but hopefully that gives you an illustration as to why we have become interested in in this area of protein. But like I say, the exercise component is by far the biggest determinant of of um, of health benefits there, and the the um, dietary manipulation is is kind of like I said, the icing on the cake. Right. No, and that I think you know. Um... It, it really sort of is significant because, um, you know, I, 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 I'm speaking on behalf of uh, people in India right now who um, many of them are vegetarians yeah. and uh, many people are now sort of turning to whey protein and yeah. supplements. Right. Um, yeah. no, so what I what, what my question to you is what um, I mean, how bad is carbohydrates in oh. whatever form, whether it's bread or whether it's rice, whether it's pasta? Because you hear more and more people when you talk about health, like cut out the carbs, cut out the carbs. But yeah. is there a certain threshold that a certain, like I can take rice, you can take whatever the form of carb that is suiting mm-hmm. suiting you, or should we just completely cut out carbs as we get older? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. So yeah, I've been involved obviously in work that has been around high protein diets, but I have also been in work on the other side, which is ketogenic diets, which is, you know, ultra low carbohydrate diets. And the thing I would, uh, the point I'd make is that um, all of these are kind of tools within the toolbox of, of a practitioner. Uh, 
And, you know, as an individual uh, in the population who's consuming science and social media and so on, and they're thinking about what diet should I follow, yeah. it can be very, very difficult to to decide what the best um, um, evidence and what the best uh, person to follow and the best information and, and so on. So when when we use um, ketogenic diets, for example, in, in athletes, generally what we're trying to do there is trying to either improve their ability to burn fat during exercise, or perhaps we're using it because it can often be a you know a calorie restricted diet and they and they can drop body weight. Um, but that is not really the same as saying it's the best way to drop body weight or it's the healthiest diet um, to consume because. Ultimately, if you're, say, following a ketogenic diet and you're cutting out carbohydrate, you're introducing other foods to the diet and different types of fats, for example, different types of, of protein. So moving all of these different components of the diet at any one time um, makes it difficult to to assess what the benefit or the, the drawback might be of, of any given diet. And a bit like the exercise uh, science research that I was describing, where on some hand, you've got these lines of evidence where it's, you know, people who've had their diet measured and followed for many, many years, the observational studies versus the studies that follow people for 12 weeks or 24 weeks of, of a given diet. We're oftentimes trying to pull those things together and, and give diet, uh, give um, health, health advice based on that. So. My my personal view is that um, there are times where it can be good to manipulate carbohydrate intake, um, you know, up or down, depending on on the uh, the goals of the individual. For athletes, for example, we can often use low carbohydrate diet, like I said, to bring about responses, positive responses to training. But mm-hmm. equally, we generally have high carbohydrate diet when we want them to be involved in high intensity activities. Um, so to to your question specifically about should we be cutting carbs or, you know, is it the best or, you know, people in India who eat a lot of carbs, is that a bad thing? We kind of use a hierarchy, you know, often when thinking about this, which is that the first question tends to be like, is the person eating the appropriate amount of calories? You know, if they're overeating on any type of calorie, um, it's going to be a problem. We, we published a study a couple of years ago where we fed people a quite a high protein diet ultimately in the absence of exercise and you know a lot of people have this kind of thing in their head well you know as long as i'm not eating carbs it's it's okay they won't gain weight but you yeah. know they overate on protein which they overate is is the you know the important word there and they still manage to gain um weight in the form of, of body fat so mm. you know you start off this question about the number of calories and then obviously you think about the diet quality and you know the basic principles you'd have there of avoiding ultra processed foods and having you know minimally processed foods or foods that are close to nature you know I'm not saying anything that isn't out there in, in the in the public domain. Yeah. And then I suppose the question does become about, you know, are certain scenarios, is it useful to restrict certain macronutrients? So, for example, in the case of diabetes now, say 15 years ago, there was still a lot of talk about low fat diets for diabetes. In the last 10 years, 10, 5, 10 years, it's become a complete sea change. Now people are talking about low carbohydrate diets as the first line of treatment when it comes to diabetes, you know, mm. you know, Try not to go to medication. Try and do a dietary manipulation first. And there's, again, a lot of evidence as to why a low-carbohydrate diet would be useful there. So I, I'm not um, I'm not trying to uh, avoid your question, but more, more trying to give you the perspective that there's lots and lots of different contexts where mm-hmm. uh, certain dietary considerations need to come into play. And there are certainly clinical conditions. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously aware of of the um, the explosion in obesity and diabetes currently in, in India. And in those scenarios, you know, for example, that is that is where I mentioned about diabetes in the first line of defense being low carbohydrate diets. That certainly is an example of where, um, you know, in some ways, I don't know if you'd say the carbohydrates are bad, but you're certainly saying that the advice at the moment would be to cut 
uh, carbohydrate if you're trying to deal with someone who's developed diabetes. And again, as you know, diabetes just doesn't happen overnight. It's a continuum. And so again, people working with their um, with their healthcare practitioner will be able to better decide what the best diet for them would be. Yeah, no, but it's, it's, you know, it, it, as you said, it, it's not a black and white situation because, mm. you know, but what, what I, I'm intrigued by, you know, like when I um, look at, look at the development of, um, you know, that India is going through right now. Mm. Um, and, and, and just, if you look at a different population, every, every country, unfortunately does have a population that is uh, low income, that is mm. struggling to get just food, uh, let alone thinking about nutrition, thinking about these things we're speaking about, which is exercise. And in India, that percentage is quite a large number. Yep. And even now, when you look at what's happening in the UK with you know, uh, rising prices of gas bills and the electricity, there are people struggling to make ends meet, right? So these things, I feel it, in an Indian context, yeah, um, it's it's great that you know people, more people are aware of exercise, but there is a big population that is unable to do these things. Um, yep. So how do... How do we uh, address this as a concern for a po- population that eventually will be unwell, will be sick because of their lifestyle, because of their situation, because of the lack of access to um, mm. good food, nutritious food, and lack of the, in- the inability to exercise because they just have to do things, right? They might have to go drive, um, you know, be a taxi driver for 18 yeah. hours being sedentary and then develop issues with lower back or other muscular issues or maybe even, you know, issues that will affect their organs because they're just being um, in this this job, which is not healthy for them. So yeah, look, uh, are these things you, you address or you look at from a research point of view? Because um, it's clearly, you know, not the primary point in their mind, but they, yeah. the, there is a very sick, there's a big sickness in that group, you know? Yeah, look, I think you're touching on a really important point again there, which is that, you know, the number one, the best predictor often of of health outcomes in later life is socioeconomic status. And um, mm. sometimes, you know, we are fortunate um, um, people who are well above the poverty line or middle class and above, you know, they have more than adequate income and time to be engaging in these types of activities. And uh, I often, um, you know, people will make judgments sometimes around say I talk about Ireland now in particular, you know, there'll be things said about the obesity crisis and taxing of, of sugar and all of these kinds of things. And, you know, on the face of it, they may make sense, but you only have to spend a bit of time um, with the, with the populations that we're talking about here in terms of the, you know, the working class and, and uh, those who are struggling to make ends meet. We did some work a few years ago uh, in a school in a disadvantaged area of Dublin. And, you know, some of the things we, you know, some of the things I was mentioning there about, um, you know, being more active or um, eating minimally processed foods, you know, in other words, fresh fruit and veg, for example. I mean, these were things that were completely alien to the uh, students and the parents who were involved in the study because it just wasn't possible. You know, they're living in areas where they don't have access. They're living on uh, incomes where that that type of thing would be would make no sense. For example, you tell them to buy fresh fruit and vegetables for their kids because that's, you know, a healthy choice. Yeah. They would say, well, if I buy fresh fruit and veg and my kids don't eat it, then I've wasted my money and I don't have much money. And so, you know, you, you get into when you really deal with the practicalities of this, you know, so much of this kind of optimization of exercise, optimization of diet. It's for people who are well, you know, we often refer to the, in the older generation called the elderly. You know, the people who most volunteer for our research studies are the people who are already well. And they, yeah. they just, you know, they want more uh, supervised exercise. Yeah. And um, it's an enormous challenge. I, I honestly, I don't research that area closely enough to have 
good informed opinions of how it needs to be addressed. Um, right. But you know, there are many, many um, issues there that are that are you know so far removed from the types of optimal uh, kind of conditions that we're talking about. And what I often hear spoken about mostly is that like to lift people up out of poverty or to, you know, to improve the, the wealth uh, inequality that's there. These are more government type policies rather than say practitioner or researcher led on the ground. And um, yeah, hopefully nothing that I've, I've uh, said today um, is insensitive to the idea that there's a huge proportion of the population um, where these optimal issues don't matter. It's, it's yeah. the more basic fundamental considerations that, that need to be addressed. No, absolutely not at all. You know, I, I I wanted to address it because I I I'm curious. You know, because I I understand the place I'm sitting in right now. It gives me the the luxury to even talk about this, yeah. right? Whether yeah. it's like you know, sometimes I've gone on an 18 hour fast or a 21 hour mm-hmm. fast, and I'm like, okay, now let me break the fast consciously, right? Yeah. Let me get let me started with some fiber, maybe started with some you know some some raw salad or maybe yeah. some thing. Then get in the sugar, then get in the protein, then get in the fat, mm-hmm. and it takes a lot. Of thinking and luxury, it, it, yeah. that that's a luxury when it comes to planning your meal, right? Or yeah. uh, forget because then I look at someone and they they have a ten minute break between you know they drive, drove someone to work now they have to yeah. get back pick up the person they just go have a quick pastry or something just processed with sugar yeah. but yeah. I can't judge them right? No, 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 for sure. And, yeah. and that's yeah. Yeah, and and that, that's such a curious thing because you feel uh, like you know there's, there's a bit of an echo chamber. Like when I talk to some people, they're like, "Yeah, I exercise this morning," or "I'm I'm on yeah. a keto diet," or someone's yeah. like, "I'm on a paleo diet." And it's so easy to sort of get lost in that and not realize that while a f- the smaller percentage of the population, which I'm fortunate to be a part of, is aware of this, whether it's autophagy or homesis that mm. the 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 gap is getting wider where more people yeah. are being sort of subject to these adverts by these big fmcg companies shoving down biscuits and cookies and and you know you ready to eat meals out of a thing and and that's that's the population that these people are targeting the ones who don't have choice and clearly like you know like in america juvenile diabetes i'm sure even in the uk you have that issue mm. um and in ireland as well mm. but it seems like it's a the, the the gap is just growing wider, right? Between people who can afford to make healthy choices and people who are subject to unhealthy um, products and a way of life even. No, I think you've summed it up very nicely there. Um, there's not much more I can add other than I'll give one example of of the, the exercise side of things. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's all well and good talking about these exercise guidelines and referring to gym type programs. And, you know, some of the, the answer is, oh, well, you know, um, certain people don't have access to a gym and then the response is often oh but you know you you can you can um, exercise around your home and you can you know, can walk and, well actually some people can't exercise around their home because they live in areas that are that are unsafe or yeah. you know then they say, well, exercise in your home and well the exercise in your home would involve buying equipment for example or it requires a, a home where there's enough space and sometimes there are many many people living in a home so you know there are so many uh, considerations that would um, you know in, in a certain subset of the population that push against, as you say, this kind of luxury that we have to choose when we exercise, have all kinds of selection of foods for our diets and so on. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a problem um, that's enormous and uh, often doesn't get the airtime. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up today. Yeah, no, I, yeah, because, you know, it's so easy to project our views on someone yeah. uh, and and our situation and like, oh, yeah, as you, as you said, you're, you're, 
why don't they you know get some fresh air many <laughs> yeah. times the air around yeah. there is not fresh like you know yeah. and even yeah. being in a dysfunctional home low low income home it's not yeah. a not a good situation many times it's, it's abusive there's a lot of things so you you and i think maybe that's something to you know people say exercise is good for your mind you get out of depression but what if you're too too steeped in that situation to even get out of that right it's just it's i mean i don't have a question for you in that but it's just it seems like there's so many various uh, factors that um sometimes we can't even I, i can't even think of because i'm not in that situation and it's not really fair on me to you know say why don't those people exercise and they'll feel better yeah it's a very difficult it's a very difficult cycle the scenario where um you know someone's getting very little activity and we would say well even at the basic level get out for a walk but yet they live in a in a built up environment where it's either not safe to walk or there's not really the ability even to find a place where it's it's comfortable to walk you know because there's you know there's uh, too much construction or too many roads or there's not appropriate footpaths and you know these types are crime is high you know so then you know there that's a kind of a, a difficult very difficult situation because i don't think again there's much doubt about the idea that some form of activity including going for just a you know a half hour walk for example several times a week can be beneficial to uh, cognitive function and mental health and so on but there are some people who are unfortunately in a position where it's very very difficult to do that and yeah like it's a, it is it's a very difficult cycle uh, and a place to be you know um before we sort of start winding down um you work closely with uh, pro athletes with elite athletes and i think you're even working with the uh, irish football team right so i i want to understand uh, we've spoken about the average population of people and you know and you told us uh, very wisely we don't have to try to work out like navy seals and he told me which i'm going to take to heart which is good but um yeah. you know I, we've spoken about longevity and how uh, there are a few things which are good uh, and of course not for everyone but there are certain situations but there's certain base things that you can do which is exercise strength training with balancing your diet etc which are good for cognitive long um, health and for physical health as we get older but but what i'm interested to know is you know you, you work with these uh, men and women who are such mm. uh, highly finely tuned machines in their own respect whether it's in their sport or the preparation they they do for that sport like you know some you know when you look at when we watch tv we watch like a nadal rafael nadal or yeah. you look at a federer and then they retire right um what happens to a body like that i mean because a lot of these guys are so highly engaged uh, and mentally focused in that space for their the, the, the span of their career when they leave that sport and you've been in that space right mm. when you're in your own sport um mm. what what i don't know if it's related to health but i just i'm just curious what happens once you leave that um because you've had that discipline for years that push for years that that focus for years does it stay on is the need to do continue to le- do that level of exercise still stay on or what 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 shifts uh, in the, in the in in the person's mind and lifestyle yeah. yeah there's a few ways of thinking about this so you know most athletes um they love competition um mm. it's the competitive juices that kind of uh, that are flowing that keep them going and motivated all that time so when competition ends um my experience is that many of them don't engage in the same level of activity you know it's hard to imagine you know a cyclist who's putting in 30 hours a week you're going to continue to do that when there's no competition for them to be involved in and mm-hmm. similarly guys you know who are involved in in uh, in team sports who are competing at a professional level when they're no longer able to play at a professional level 
it's not like they're going to train five or six times a week, you know, with their friends in, in the park. So mm. it, the one of the major changes that will occur is the absence of competition will mean that they probably won't engage in as much activity. Um, that doesn't mean they stop completely. Again, there are examples where people, you know, completely stop uh, training, but many of them, because they enjoy activity and they enjoy their sport, they'll continue to be involved in, in some domain, but are perhaps not at a competitive level and certainly not doing the same volume of training. Mm-hmm. So already in that scenario, there will inevitably be, inevitably be declines in, in their performance and in their fitness as a result. And, you know, at the same time, they're probably still going to maintain a level of fitness above and beyond the average member of the population. There was a study done many years ago that looked at the uh, longevity outcomes of people involved in the, in the Tour de France. And generally, again, there were, you know, health benefits that were obvious and whether that was to do with the activity when they were younger or whether it was the fact that they stayed more active during later life, you know, it's hard to separate those effects. But generally speaking, people will, will stay active. But you might be getting at the idea that many of our uh, athletes that we know that are in the public domain, when they retire, they begin to put on quite a bit of weight. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I think there is, there is the decline in in, uh, in overall training volume. And uh, I feel that sometimes maybe there's two things happening. One is that they were very disciplined with what they ate during their career because they had to be, you know, most yeah. athletes in most sports want to be slightly um, lighter or leaner, you know, than, yeah. than they might be naturally. Um, so they're generally exerting some kind of control around their diet, uh, you know, much of the time. So perhaps when they retire, they begin to become a bit more relaxed about their diet. But they also may continue to consume the same amount of food or close to it that they used to uh, when they were competing. And yet now they're training far less. And so I think it's a combination of a little less discipline and a little less training. And, you know, the weight gain can come very quickly soon after that. But, um, Mm. yeah, it's it's interesting. So that, you know, they're the physical changes, but there's a whole body of work and research around the the transition from from, uh, being an athlete into retirement. And again, very interesting research around the way that elite level athletes have to deal with retirement and some of the emotions that they go through. And again, sometimes bouts of depression and so on in terms of trying to do to um, um, uh, deal with the with the now post retirement um, lifestyle. And so, again, it's uh, many, many you know, multifactorial in terms of the, the considerations. But, uh, yeah, it's a certainly a major concern um, for athletes as they approach their uh, retirement as to what, what they're going to do next. Yeah, it's almost like losing a sense of purpose, right? Which is uh, which can be really sort of uh, leaves you in the dark. And you're like, oh yeah, many many that? athletes will many athletes will use the phrase identity. So they'll talk about the fact that their identity was wrapped up in their achievements and their um, activities as an athlete. And when that ends, if they don't go into coaching, they're effectively now their their they can be their identity can be they're now a retired and well known because they were uh, you know popular in their sport. But again like we were talking about, that's only a very small number of people who achieve the status that they're famous or well-known, you know, into retirement. Many, many other athletes at many levels um, are no longer athletes. And they, yeah, you're right. They lose that identity or that purpose. And unless they find something to to replace that, again, there can be uh, negative consequences. Yeah, no, it's nice to get insight from someone who's so closely involved in the sport, right? Because you always... Otherwise, get speculation like, oh, you know, after he retired, he just lost his way. He went <laughs> to the pub every day. But there's, there's clearly so many nuances, right? Because you have so many different personalities. You have so many different stories yeah. behind those people. Yeah. You know, the thing is that people who are involved in individual sports, you know, they tend to be, you know, really self-motivated and um 
self-sufficient and you know so i i've i've dealt with athletes who are involved in for example triathlete triathlon or or longer duration sports individual sports and you know they are so motivated by the finer details and and um, fixated on numbers and targets and so on team sports a little bit different because team sport everyone is together and they're mm. all aiming towards the same goal um and you know, okay metrics are important and things like body fat get measured and you know things like their grams of carbohydrate get get measured but it's not done in the same way that it's done in in endurance sports and it's not it's probably not the same um um limitation on performance as it might be in an endurance sport so you get very very different um personalities and approaches between say individual endurance sports versus team field-based invasion sports and so it's again that's a an interesting perspective as well not at not at not all athletes are, are the same either in terms of their motivations their behaviors and, and their knowledge either good good to know good good to know that you know that everyone yeah i think that's uh, something which i really appreciate you covering today is this idea that you know um there's not one approach to the destination right we can take different routes and understand what works for us but i think these these basics are really important to continuity and not just kind of falling for the the fads and the various things and then getting demotivated. So I really appreciate you, um, you know, painting a really well-balanced picture for people listening and for me as well. So thanks, uh, Brendan, for taking the time and sharing your expertise and your knowledge with, uh, with me today. My pleasure. It was very enjoyable. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.